Hello, welcome to the Nightmare of Reason podcast. I'm Roger Rudenstein, and today we'll be talking about what happened to classical music and what can be done about it. I've been watching an interesting show by Seth MacFarlane, the creator of Family Guy. It's called The Orville. It's a Star Trek-like saga set 300 years from now. Lots of music is played by the citizens of the future. However, none of it is classical. In the show, there is almost no classical music, except for the show's background and intro music, which is modern-style classical music. But the fact that it's never played by the people on the Orville, on the spaceship, seems a realistic projection of what is happening as America's musical knowledge becomes narrower. And what is hyped is what makes the most money for the companies hyping it. Had this metric been used in Beethoven's time, we would not have the rich musical heritage that we have today, because the common denominator would definitely not be Beethoven. In fact, Beethoven's most popular work, while he was alive, was a work called Wellington's Victory Over Napoleon. And it was a ridiculous work filled with cannon shots and other special effects. And uh, nothing like the symphonies or the piano concertos or the string quartets that music aficionados listen to today. Today's musical world is way off. Steady barrage of praise and reward shows for popular music. But classical music appears most often as a satire. For example, in the commercial where the rapper 50 Cent jokingly conducts Beethoven, even the Orville's background music is satirical in that it mimics the bombastic music of Star Trek and other Hollywood blockbusters. Another example of this in today's culture is Mr. Holland's Opus, a movie that was later turned into a Broadway musical. This one is about a poor teacher, a music teacher, who just desperately wants to have his symphony played that, that he composed. And the whole thing is a build-up to that. At the very end, he gets his wish, and the symphony is played. Now, I haven't seen the Broadway show, but I did see the movie. And what results when the symphony is played is a, a totally inane piece of work. It's a total letdown. It's basically crap. Oh, of course, as I've mentioned before in previous podcasts, every villain on TV and in the movies plays classical music on their phonographs, especially opera. Opera seems to be a particular favorite of serial killers. In the past, classical music was subsidized by kings and aristocrats for all the oppression that they did and the political badness that they represent. Still, had the musical education and good taste to appreciate classical music. As feudalism died away and these aristocrats and kings were replaced by politicians, the new bourgeois masters of the world continued to emulate the taste of the aristocracy, who continued to set the bar for culture. For example, and there's so many examples of this, I'm just going to give one because because I had some experience with this, Beethoven's contemporary Prince Lobkowitz, a Czech uh, prince who lived in Czechoslovakia, or Bohemia as it was then called under the Austrian Empire, played several instruments, and he dedicated his fortune to Beethoven, Haydn, and other musicians and composers. 
He maintained a private orchestra that premiered Beethoven's Third Symphony, the Eroica, and Beethoven dedicated his Third, Fifth, and Sixth Symphonies to Prince Lobkowitz, as well as string quartets and other works. Lobkowitz helped pay Beethoven's salary to keep him in Vienna when he was offered another job. I visited uh, Lobkowitz's castle in the Czech Republic as part of a vacation tour that I did of uh, Eastern Europe, and I was flabbergasted in a display case that displayed various things that were, you know, that the old Lobkowitz family held dear, was a first edition of Beethoven's Fifth. It had crude cardboard covers, and oddly enough said it was written by Luigi van Beethoven in an attempt to identify with Italian composers who were then ruling the roost in the world. A good example of how the rising bourgeoisie, despite its trying to follow the cultural mores of the outgoing aristocrat, how that's often worked out, is an opera by Richard Strauss. I believe it came out in 1916. And it's called Ariadne auf Naxos, and if you haven't heard it, you really ought to get it and listen to it. It's one of his best works, and I think his best work, actually, his best opera work. It's about a bourgeois nouveau riche, and it's drawn from the character of Moliere's play, Le Bourgeois Gentium. Anyway, he decides to present a new opera for his guests for, for a big due at his big estate that he, he bought. But then he finds its length interferes with the fireworks, which were scheduled for that evening. So at the last minute, he orders the composer to condense the opera and to run the opera's comic interludes, which are basically clown shows with Harlequin and uh, Sir Benetta. He orders him to make those run simultaneously with the dramatic scenes of Ariadne apparatically crying her heart out for her lover who has abandoned her to this horrible little island. By the time we reach the 19th century, the le bourgeois gentilhomme has decided to stop aping the aristocrats and make his own darn decisions about culture, based, of course, on his sorry lack of culture. And so we see a new phenomenon where music had been elaborately subsidized by aristocrats like Prince Lobkowitz, Companies were now created whose sole purpose was to make a profit off music. And in Schubert's time, which is in the mid-19th century, we see this happening very dramatically. Schubert was very poor. He had decided to quit teaching in his father's school and to just make music. And he wrote some great music. And in fact, he wrote a bunch of leader or songs which were very popular and sung in many households. Remember, in those days, they didn't have recordings, so they had to make their own music or invite someone in to make music. How did Schubert live? He barely did, but he did make some money off of sheet music, his sheet music that he sold the rights to some sheet music company to sell. However, it was about 30 bucks. This was his lifetime earnings for his sheet music. And while $30 did buy a lot more than it does today, in those days, it still wasn't much money. And there's nothing he could do about it. They wouldn't give him a raise. They wouldn't raise the rate. He had no leverage. And uh, these companies were out to make a profit. And they make a profit just like companies today, no matter who they hurt. By the latter half of the 20th century, we have most people getting their music via recordings. And the market rules what recordings are going to be released and how much advertising they're going to be given and so on. And 
what rules the music recording market, the same mind that rules the movie market, the 14-year-old mind. 14-year-olds spend a lot of money on music, and they go to movies over and over again if they like them. One of the turning points may have been the Woodstock Festival, the famous Woodstock Festival in the 60s, which solidified the rise of the counterculture. The counterculture did not like formal things like classical music, which represented the old order, the old conformist order that was telling them they couldn't wear their hair long, they had to wear a suit, they had to get a job, and that kind of stuff. And it counterposed informality and musical simplicity to the highbrow music played by the stuffed shirts, the people who were in penguin suits or went to opera and so on. Interestingly, in the Orville, he talked about, now this is supposed to be 300 years from now, they talk about that their union, it's called the Galactic Union, it's no longer the United States, it's the Galactic Union of Earth and various other worlds, that the progress was made only when they abolished buying and selling. So they're living in really a communist society, although that word is definitely not pushed in the Orville by, by its creators. But it looks like in the Orville, it was too late for the music, whose fate had already been determined by the commercialism of the century that we're living in. As I explained earlier in earlier podcasts, classical music as a genre took a further hit when the mainstream composers, like even Stravinsky, adopted atonalism as a way of differentiating themselves from both the past and popular music by dragging classical into a genre for those who think ugliness and chaos best describes our lives and should therefore be reflected in our music. This approach can work in, say, the fine arts. In other words, a picture can be extremely ugly and still say something and have meaning to people and be great art. When you drag this concept into the world of music, you get a different effect because the painting, you only look at for a few seconds, maybe a minute, but but with the music, you're stuck there. And it could be if it's an opera, you'll be stuck there for hours listening to this crap and, you know, having all your senses hurt by it. And it's trying to make the point that life is horrible and miserable and that we live in an epoch of chaos and bad things, all of which arguably is true. But when it's thrust into music, it can be a horrible experience for the listener and not work out the way it does in painting. Another trap for classical music that some composers fell into was creating boring compositions, or at least the critics and audience let them get away with it. And a salient example, of course, is Cage's 11 Minutes of Silence. It's considered to be great music, great art. Amazing. 11 minutes of playing absolutely nothing. That was more like performance art, so you, you could give them a pass a little bit on that. But I've heard so many works that they start off Maybe interesting, and and yet the composer fails to develop the, fails to go do anything new, and as a result, the whole thing is extremely boring, and often that is branded as a good thing by critics. The same type of critics who fell for the atonalism bit, who once they got over that, are applying their brilliant skills to other types of music, such as the boring great work of art. Another approach was Philip Glass's which also embraced the boring, I must say, is Einstein on the Beach marked a festival approach to classical music. The piece, which was mostly arpeggios, went on for hours, totally went nowhere, musically speaking, totally not interesting. However, 
There was a spectacle on stage that was occasionally interesting, although, frankly, uh, things didn't change very much over time, as far as I could see. But they were different, like Einstein, somebody dressed like Einstein playing the fiddle. There's a clever idea. And uh, it drew rapt audiences around the world in its day. But you don't see performances of Einstein in the beach these days anywhere. So what is to be done? First, we have to ask, should anything be done? Is modern classical music a cousin of the dodo? Or could it have something great for humanity? My answer is yes. Classical techniques properly applied by a talented composer can produce unequal complexity, beauty, and depth. I'll say it again. Classical techniques properly applied by a talented composer can produce unequaled complexity, beauty, and depth. That's one reason why cinema uses modern classical music. Directors know that even the diluted classical music they put in films has a unique effect upon the audience. It, it heightens the emotion. It adds depth to the film at certain spots. Unfortunately, though, many talented composers and musicians are drawn into popular music because of the fame and monetary compensation it provides. Many years ago, I was in a band called Tiny Alice, which was an eclectic band in Cleveland, Ohio, and we opened for the Iron Butterfly, which was then at the height of its popularity. They had a hit tune called Inagata De Vida, which is a ridiculous popular song, one of the more ridiculous popular songs ever written. But they were at the height of their fame. And I was then, believe it or not, my then wife and I were renting a mansion at a very low price because it was an old mansion that the people wanted needed a caretaker. So we basically were caretakers and uh, got in at a very low rent. So I offered uh, my spot since we had the same producer, basically, and we were going to open for them. I offered the living room of my mansion for them to rehearse. So they trunked in all this equipment. Oh my God, they filled the whole living room with big boxes with speakers and amplifiers and everything. And they were waiting for their rehearsal. And to my utter amazement, every one of them was playing Bach. Not the same piece, by the way, but each one was playing Bach. In other words, these were all trained, probably uh, classically trained musicians who had gone over to the dark side to... Uh, make money and, and fame and get girls and whatever their particular reasons were. I didn't really get a chance to talk to any of them, unfortunately. So the next question is, how can classical music make a comeback and stop being what it is today, an archival, museum-bound genre? Polls show that those who listen to classical music are numerous, millions upon millions of people, both in the U.S. and worldwide. I think when I was uh, advertising on Facebook at one point, and I said, well, give me the number of people in the United States who like classical music and also are a liberal politically, I got something like 16 million possible people as an audience. And that, so the number that like classical are not so liberal, if you add those in, uh, it's going to be quite a number. However, I can find no polls on how many people listen to modern classical music. That's hard because there's not a lot of it played. And so how to gauge that? But I guess you could get some statistics off iTunes and Amazon, maybe, or in Pandora Radio. But I, I, to my knowledge, nobody has done that. If any of you out there have that information, please, please put that in the comments. 
But if you include the cinema, the majority of people are exposed to modern classical music because everybody goes to the movies. And most movies have modern classical music as the background. But the problem is that in, in movies, the music takes a backseat to the plot. As I went over in my podcast, the, the cinema where classical music went to die, the music takes a backseat to the plot. It's often dumbed down and always fainter than the dialogue. And because of being in a film, the piece is all over the place. It has to meet the current action. So there's no chance for development. The only time you hear a little development is in the music over the credits. But again, that's not very long, and there isn't much development that anybody could even do. And not all these composers even do any development. Also, when I say dumbed down, it's set because the audience must be able to assimilate the music based on its own current understanding of music, which in general is very low. And especially the 14-year-olds that most Hollywood movies are aimed at, those people have very little appreciation of what music is, knowledge of music history, and they're not attracted at all to classical music, but yet here it's being presented in the movie. So the, the music can't be anything that's beyond their ken, let us say. But think about it. When you listen to classical music of the past, if you're a classical music lover, and you probably are since you're listening to my podcast, do you see any analogy to movie music? I don't think very often. The movie music is very rarely heard in concert. And when it is, it's usually because the movie is a cult favorite, like Star Wars, which has cliche music inspired by the German Romantics, composed by the modern composer, John Williams. And this does nothing for classical music, really. It's, in fact, it gives a wrong impression of what modern classical music is. And it's not just a copy of old-time Romantic music. These concerts are not given to advance the cause of music or culture. They're given to make money by producers with dollar signs in their eyes. You're going to make money off Star Wars and John Williams's music. Another problem for classical music is the performing organizations are all facing extinction. And they have to be very careful about what they put in concert. If they have a concert of some modern music, guess what? Nobody's going to come. And so what they have to do is they have to give basically a concert of archival music, of the great music of the past. They become a performance museum, like the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which does have mostly old art, but does have a little bit of modern art. So they're like museums. They're like living, breathing museums. And for a while, they hardly did any modern music because atonalism did that in. But now that composers are, as I've mentioned in past podcasts, doing tonal music, they are willing to throw in a little modern music here and there, which is good. But compare that to the past. Up until the 20th century, most concerts were modern music. They weren't just rehashing the past over and over again. They were looking for new compositions. They didn't see their mission as being a museum. But modern orchestras do, and partially that's because it's so hard for them to exist, and they have to make money, and they have to pack in the audience, or they don't have the money to pay the players. But the problem is, people who choose these works that I've heard in various concerts, to put it bluntly, have no taste. They're either putting them in because perhaps they're a friend of the composer, a relative, lover, or because it fits a certain time slot or subject matter, perhaps. Maybe this is a concert around some concept, and that music fits the concept. 
not because it's good. And most of it is very bad. Now, I don't know if that reflects the current state of the composers who were drawn into popular music. What's left is maybe a dreg or the fact that the good composers are being ignored. If this had happened in the past, if the Prince Lovkovitzes and so on had this attitude, there would be no Mozart, no Beethoven, no Haydn, no Bach. No, what we get is those German umpa bands and that kind of stuff. That was pop stuff that was popular with people who didn't know very much about music, but really were entertained by nice music, by lively music, sometimes by maudlin, sad, melodramatic. In the classical past, uh, composers learned from popular music. They didn't just revile it. They learned a lot from it. They put some of these tropes into their own music and transfigure them using the techniques of classical music to produce a different product, a product that was more to be appreciated by those who understood a more complex type of music than, than those who, you know, consume popular music at the time. And today it should be no different. There's still a lot, any composer of classical music today can learn from popular music. I know I have. And many of my pieces incorporate tropes I've learned from popular music. And there's no reason why anyone shouldn't do that. One good thing about popular music is it, it uses melody. Many modern classical composers have given up on melody, not just the serialists and atonalists either. They just don't think it's important to write melodies anymore. Or, or if they do, they're just perfunctory and not interesting. Whereas popular music, melody is everything. The other, the other element that popular music has, and much of the classical music I've heard today, the modern classical music doesn't have, is drama. And there's nothing dramatic about it. It just sort of clunks around until the, apparently the composer decided that's enough, I'll, I'll just end it. Popular music, almost all, has some sort of drama and feeling to it. Whereas many classical composers today think drama and feeling are not something for classical music, which is kind of ridiculous given the great classical music. All of it has that. In our outback, what we get is what Theodore Adorno, the social critic and philosopher, called imbecilic spectacle. And he says imbecilic spectacle has eclipsed art. The level of taste of the ruling stratum under what we could call late capitalism has degenerated, and the results are before our eyes. One out of millions of examples. When I was young, there was a show called Hallmark Hall of Fame. And, and what did it present? The great plays of Ibsen, Shakespeare, Arthur Miller, Carol Kapek, R-U-R, which where the word robot was invented. Today, the Hallmark Channel presents idiotic rom-coms of a particular bland nature. And this is what passes for the Hallmark Hall of Fame. I, mean, I guess they dropped the word fame, <laughs> knowing that these things would achieve any fame, hopefully, even in our epoch. A similar process occurred in the Roman Empire, also where painting, sculpture, and plays went downhill and were never at the level of the Greek models. Consider Claudius, the comedic writer of Roman times, versus Sophocles or any of the Greek playwrights. And Plotus was at the top of the heap in the Roman playwriting genre. In our own time, a Bob Dylan wins the Nobel Prize for poetry. And Kendrick Lamar 
wins the Pulitzer Prize for music, a prize usually awarded to either classical music or jazz. But what can you expect in a country where 54% of the adult population reads below the sixth grade level and where probably 90% of adults, maybe more, have not had any music education that puts them in touch with the great music of the past. The great classical music of the past is our common heritage as human beings. And there are so few people to be in contact with it and understand it and listen to it in all its fullness is a horrible tragedy for modern society. Not only are people not taught to listen to classical music and what, what, what is there for them to listen to, but they are also constantly given negative examples of classical music. And the idea is promulgated by modern commercialized society that, in fact, classical music is only for the elite and not for regular people. Well, it may be for the elite, and if you define the elite as people who know about music, but it's not for the elite who are rich and billionaires and so on. No, no, that's not what, a, what classical music was written for, and that's not the only people that it affects, and that's not who should own it at this point. In fact, most billionaires don't even appreciate classical music anymore. <laughs> that, that's a whole thing of the past when, as I said, the aristocrats went for classical music. The, the modern aristocrats don't like it at all. And uh, they're just as ignorant as everyone else. So something must be done about that if classical music is going to survive in the long haul. Well, there's the epoch that we live in. And it's ruled by an outmoded and degenerated class of greedy billionaires. And they're bought and paid for politicians. And they're cultural whores, basically. We need a fundamental change from a commercialized dog-eat-dog society slouching towards authoritarianism to a society of human cooperation, what the Orville had, believe it or not. Watch that show. You see what I mean? A not-for-profit society that cares about people and will thus care about art and eventually raise the true artists in all forms to the top. Once this owning of things and this commercial greed goes by the wayside. However, even if society were to change tomorrow, there's no guarantee that there are enough people left with taste to move the classical music art form forward. One of the biggest problems is that the big money for popular music has attracted the most talented composers away from classical music. This may be why classical music today is in such bad straits. Many composers who write modern classical music are not avoiding various pitfalls boring music. They think that boring music is artistic music. Or they embrace the minimalist style, which is just endless repetition of the same damn thing. Composers of modern classical music need to avoid getting sucked into music for commercials, video games, and films. These are very lucrative, and they can bring you all kinds of money and make you very successful in terms of how rich you are but they deaden your ability to produce significant works. It would be better if you waited tables like would-be actor or having any kind of day job, like teaching. Something that will leave you free to pursue your art without commercial distortion.
because as I've explained, the commercialization of music has meant that music has lost its way. You need to also embrace the, and I'm talking specifically to you composers out there, you need to embrace technology. I know many people use a digital audio workstation and so on, but the technology has advanced way beyond that. It's now possible to produce music that sounds like real orchestra or ensemble plated, and you can do this right on your computer using MIDI and good patches. Think about what is a patch? What they did was they got somebody playing a real instrument, play all the notes and in all the different uh, articulations. So it's not made out of nothing or synthesized, although there are some very good synthesized instruments out there using techniques that sound very much like good classical music instruments. Many composers now use MIDI for mock-ups to show a live orchestra or ensemble what they intended. They don't realize that this could replace the live orchestra or ensemble, believe it or not. The benefit of this is it gives you much more control of the final product. And it's way cheaper than paying big bucks to the many composers, orchestras, or ensembles that will do your music or whether you just pay them a whole bunch of money. Because what happens there is you get one shot at it, and they usually don't rehearse very much, and they're just doing piece after piece for various composers, and yet they charge you an arm and a leg, and then you wind up with an audio file that maybe you can't even use, or you can use it, but it's not really what you wanted. But there's nothing, no way to change any of it except to, you know, pay for yet another session. And then that could introduce other problems. Whereas when you're working with MIDI, you can change any of the notes. And I don't mean change the pitch of the notes. You can do that, of course. You can change the velocity, change how it really sounds, change the volume. It's all kinds of things with MIDI that are impossible when you just get an audio file from, say, an orchestra that played your work for a bunch of bucks. The other benefit of this methodology is time to market. One of the big problems that classical suffers from is that when big events occur and the composer wants to respond to it, it could take years, literally, to schedule it with a performing organization, especially an orchestra or an opera company. With the MIDI method, you can get out as soon as you compose it. A couple of weeks later, there it is. You can get it out on the internet immediately and get it to the streaming services and so on. Pop music has been using this technique ever since it began, practically. They, they can get this stuff out really quick and, uh, and make it topical, whereas classical music has always suffered from the performance gap. So that's just another reason to uh, adopt technology to create music that's more attuned to what's going on in the world. Learning how to use MIDI to create what sounds like a live performance is not a trivial thing. It requires practice, and most importantly, it requires someone to help you who knows how to do this in the first place and can give you the tips and uh, teach you how to do it. Here I'd like to give a shout-out to Gary Gray. Gary Gray is a award-winning composer, music producer, and audio engineer. And he's the one who helped me through this process that continues to uh, mentor me. And I think I never would have gotten there without his help. So you need to find someone like Gary and, and really toe the line to get this thing done. But in the end, it's extremely worthwhile, as I've discussed. If we can increase the amount of really good classical music works, I think that will go a long way in advancing the genre forward. I, I hate to say it, 
folks, but when I listen to classical music play playlists on like Spotify, I hear so much junk. And some of that's on very good labels like Deutsche Grammophon or, or, or Noxos. And to me, these things are boring, and who the heck would want to listen to them? 29-minute piece that just simply repeats the same thing over and over and over and over again? Come on, you got to be kidding. Yeah, it's not atonal, so it doesn't have that harsh, grating, ugly sound that used to be the rage. But the new rage is just say the same thing over and over. How nice for the composer. It's very simple. And if you're a big name, a big celebrity in, in this world... You can get people to listen to it. You can get millions of listens. doesn't mean it's good. I've heard all kinds of crap on the Internet that's had millions of listens, and that doesn't make it at all good. It just means a million people listened. Personally, I'm, I'm willing to join with others whose work or taste I respect to try to brainstorm some short-term solutions. If you feel you are one of these people, please contact me. I guess that's enough for this podcast. Please stay safe, and I will see you the next time around. And we'll end with uh, some more of my music. Bye. Thank you.